And in the meantime, President Trump wants to put his art of the deal book to use and come up with what he thinks would be a better deal for the United States and the Paris Agreement. In terms of China, did they make any commitments vis-a-vis -vis coal? China, it's they've got to clean up the air. Beijing is like Pittsburgh in 1950. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing the geopolitics of energy. I'm here with Adam Siminski, the James R. Schlesinger Chair for Energy and Geopolitics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, welcome, Adam. It's great to have you here. Happy to be here, Brian. To start us off, I was wondering if you could give us an overview of some of the most important developments in global energy markets that affect geopolitics. What are the big things that are changing that have implications for geopolitics? Well, if you look back over the last 50 years, a lot of the geopolitics in energy has really been centered around oil. The consumption of energy globally is still dominated uh, by oil. Uh, coal is the second largest uh, source of energy use uh, around the world. Uh, natural gas comes in second, and renewables is is uh, third, but moving up pretty fast. Uh, the expectation of the Energy Information Administration, which I headed for four and a half years, uh, is that oil will continue to grow, mainly because global incomes are still rising, and in some places like Asia and the Middle East, populations are still going up. Coal is going to start to flatten uh, considerably, uh, even if uh, policymakers uh, in the United States and China uh, have reasons for wanting to continue to use coal. Uh, renewables growing very rapidly, as I said, but from a relatively low base, so that by the time we get to 2040 or even 2050, we're still going to be depending on fossil fuels around the world. One of the big developments that I'm aware of is is really the spectacular shift in the United States with the fracking revolution and the U.S. going from, I believe, the world's biggest importer of refined petroleum products to actually now being the biggest exporter in the in the world. Um, and it's happened fast, right? This is, this is a transition in about 10 years. How does that fit into how supply has been changing worldwide and and the shift in politics around energy. Let's go back to those numbers. You're exactly right about that. And that's on the oil side. And on the natural gas side, it's been very impressive, too. We are going from being a pretty big natural gas importer to being a net exporter probably within the next year, year and a half. Um, it truly was, a in the energy area, a revolution. Uh, it seemed like it happened overnight, despite the fact that it actually was 25 years in the making, uh, but it really accelerated uh, in the period after around 2008 to 10. Uh, one of the interesting things about um, the shale revolution in the United States is, is that half of our oil production and about two-thirds of the natural gas production is now coming from wells which are being hydraulically fractured. Senator Bernie Sanders campaigned on the idea of halting or banning hydraulic fracturing. Completely impractical. You couldn't do it, uh, not without having gasoline prices back up to $4 a gallon, which most Americans don't want to see. 
So one of the one of the potential implications is the United States for decades has been very concerned about the Middle East and Middle East partially because of its source of energy for our own markets and needs. As we've become a, a much more significant energy producer, some have said that this has implications about for U.S. policy and, frankly, the whether or not the Middle East is as important from an energy angle. Right? Certainly, there are other areas, terrorism, and other reasons to to be concerned about the Middle East. But some have argued, and you know, this was a debate in the Obama administration, that the Middle East should play a much smaller role in our foreign policy. Uh, calculus. How do you see that issue? You mentioned earlier, Brian, that the, the idea of energy independence, which every president since Dwight Eisenhower has talked about. We're very close to achieving that. We're net exporter of coal. We will be shortly a net exporter of natural gas. Uh, electricity is kind of a North American thing. Uh, and, and on the oil side, we're getting closer and closer. Now, we're still importing about 5 million barrels a day of oil, but that number could go down. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that uh, that in another 10 years we could be uh, completely energy independent. If you go back to this issue of what does that change, it certainly uh, helps the dollar. It creates jobs. Uh, it, it makes you slightly less uh, economically vulnerable if oil prices go up. But if oil prices go up and gasoline goes from 250 to 3 or $4 a gallon, uh, even if you're an exporter of oil, uh, that's still a problem for your economy. So the U.S. has still got a very strong interest in the Middle East where a lot of the world's oil production comes from. Saudi Arabia, the you know second, uh, third largest oil producer in the world, uh, up there with the United States and Russia. Uh, so the, the point is, is that for the reasons you cited, uh, terrorism, uh, but just general economic growth, uh, wanting to uh, see uh, the, the area uh, in the Middle East uh, moving uh, towards modern economies and societies, uh, the U.S. is going to have a very strong interest, even if we are not importing a drop of oil from that region. Another part of the world where uh, oil energy production has been a very important source of power, has been Russia, um, where energy production is one of the biggest uh, parts of, of their economy. And we've seen over the years um, Russia use that leverage against European nations and, and others. In the midst of this change and this transformation of um, the U.S. and energy markets around the world, does that have an implication for for Russia and it, its role in the world? Well, one of the most interesting things about the OPEC meeting back at the end of last year was that uh, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, agreed kind of and personally put his stamp of approval on Russian cooperation with OPEC and trying to stabilize the oil price. And that really means holding production down in order to keep prices higher, right? Yes, uh, although the the success of almost anybody trying to do that uh, has varied <laughs> over the years. And, and certainly if you go back in, even into the 1960s, we've had decades of incredible ups and downs in the global oil markets and a lot of economic turmoil comes along with that. So the idea of trying to stabilize the oil price in some way actually 
might make some economic sense. It's but there are a lot of disagreements about how you really want to see that and whether uh, OPEC or market forces is the best way to accomplish that kind of a goal. Coming back to Russia, um, it's a really interesting energy uh, country. Internally, Russia is a huge user of natural gas. 50% of the energy in Russia is natural gas and 25% is oil. Very small, actually, on coal. Only about 15% of consumption of energy in Russia is coal. China, on the other hand, two-thirds of the energy use in China is coal. 20% is oil and, and hydro and, and, uh, and a few other things make up the difference. The U.S. is much more balanced, 35% uh, oil, 30% gas, 15% coal, and you know, pretty good um, uh, amount of nuclear and hydroelectricity and renewables now coming into the, the electric sector. So those three big players uh, in the global energy markets have very different internal dynamics associated with how they use energy. Uh, and it, it leads, I think, to some interesting geopolitical issues that we'll be seeing play out over the next decade. And what do you th uh, expect to see some of the most important of those issues being? Well, I, I think the first thing is, is is Russia's exports of both oil and natural gas into Europe and now increasingly Asia um, will continue to be extremely important to that country from an economic perspective. It is the bulk of their their sort of export earnings and a big piece of the GDP in in Russia. For China, it's they've got to clean up the air. Uh, it, 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 Beijing is like Pittsburgh in, in 1950. You know, the steel industry was great for jobs, but it was creating some really serious problems from the standpoint of air pollution that eventually citizens in the U.S. decided that they needed to clean that up, and we have. And I think China is going to do the same thing. For the U.S., I think it's going to be an interesting um, kind of in a, race in a way between natural gas and renewables uh, to to see how we're going to deliver the incremental growth in energy use in the in the U.S. And there, there are some interesting things too, because natural gas can be used in industry and petrochemical feedstocks, and renewables with electricity. It's largely going to be in the power sector. Um, if we were to see a technological breakthrough in batteries or electric vehicles, it would make a huge difference around the world. President Trump announced that he's going to withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement. What are the implications of this announcement, and how important is it for the energy landscape that you just talked about? There weren't a lot of details. So the general interpretation is it's going to be the the four years process of pulling out. And in the meantime, President Trump wants to, to uh, put his art of the deal book uh, to use and come up with what he thinks would be a better deal for the United States in the Paris Agreement. If you go back to what the Paris Agreement was really all about, um, the Kyoto Protocol was the developed countries that had already uh, built up their economies using fossil fuels uh, agreed to try to find ways to limit um, the output of greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide. The interesting change in the Paris Agreement is that you got 
almost every country in the world to 195 countries to agree to try to limit uh, the, the impact that uh, greenhouse gases were having on the climate and the outlook for what we would see over the next 50 years. The U.S. pulling out of the Paris Agreement doesn't change anything in the very near term but it sends a signal that says that the U.S. might not be as interested in, in um, moving in the direction of dealing with uh, the output of carbon dioxide from fossil fuels that we have been talking about for a decade. So uh, I, I think that the, if you say, is it going to immediately change the energy mix in the United States? No, it's not. Um, does it possibly keep the U.S. out of the room when we're discussing a pretty important climate and economic uh, issue? Uh, that's an interesting question, and I think that the president is going to continue to try to figure out a way to keep the U.S. in the conversation. So one of the concerns that the Trump administration has expressed, or one that that, that supportive statements that they've made is, is concern about coal and coal jobs in the United States. Um, how do you see that unfolding here, given what you've talked about in terms of the energy markets um, um, and um, the sources of energy around the world? Well, what's the future of U.S. coal? President Trump did promise that he was going to bring back coal uh, during the campaign. And uh, the jobs associated with that, if you think of like where we traditionally think of coal mining jobs, it's West Virginia and Kentucky and places like that. Uh, but where a lot of the coal being produced in the United States now comes from is Wyoming and Montana. It's western coal from the Powder River Basin. It's not the, the um, deep mining and strip mining in the, in the east. That's a big change. And, and if you uh, – if the president – follows through, and it does appear that they're moving in this direction to, um, to not have uh, the clean power plan, uh, we will continue to use about the same amount of coal that we are using now. Uh, we won't see uh, uh, as many uh, coal power plants retiring uh, as rapidly as we would have under the clean power plan, but natural gas and renewables are still going to be powerful competitors uh, in new generation facilities uh, for uh, electricity. So whether the, the president can really deliver or not is, a, is a, going to be an interesting problem for him. If we do get more coal in the U.S., it's probably going to be that western coal and not the eastern coal. And why is that? What's more attractive about the western coal? It's, uh, it's less expensive to mine. And the high cost of coal is what was creating the problem for coal in the first place. It wasn't, uh, it, it, it wasn't 100% the bureaucrats in Washington punishing the, the coal industry. Uh, it was competition with natural gas, uh, and particularly after the hydraulic fracking revolution, uh, a lot of relatively inexpensive gas in, in coming from places like the Marcellus and Utica fields in Pennsylvania and Ohio, uh, really competitive uh, with coal uh, in, in the east. And now what we're uh, seeing is uh, with the continuation of state 
uh, and even sometimes local support subsidies for things like solar and wind, uh, that's also going to be a problem for coal. Uh, so reviving the coal industry uh, in the U.S. is, is not going to be easy. We might slow down the decline, uh, but I don't think we're going to see coal climbing. On a global basis, uh, it's just normal air pollution issues in places like China and India that are going to decide what's going to happen there. In China, uh, they're ready to move, and I think they're going to try to limit uh, coal uh, growth there, uh, relying more on things like nuclear, maybe natural gas and renewables. And in places like India and some of the other emerging uh, nations in Asia, I think uh, coal is still going to be very, very attractive. There's hundreds of millions of people in India that don't have electricity, and getting electricity to those people is extremely important to them and their policymakers. And even if it comes from coal, they're going to do it. So picking up China just for a moment, one of the, as, as you mentioned, one of the fundamental commitments the U.S. made in terms of how it was going to achieve its its commitments made in Paris was through the clean power plant bill, right? Reducing the amount of coal production, which produce, uh, coal burning coal produces large numbers of greenhouse gases, large quantities of greenhouse gases relative to other fuels. In terms of China, um, which, as you pointed out, is currently very dependent on coal, did they make any commitments vis-a-vis coal for their they had a commitment that was essentially to stop the growth in uh, greenhouse gases at a date in the future. So uh, that's certainly possible. And as I said, um, China has its own internal reasons for wanting to uh, to clean coal up in some way, either not use as much um, or find ways to, uh, to uh, clean up the emissions. Normal kinds of things that we used to worry about here. Uh, sulfur dioxides, nitrogen oxides, and other um, emissions from coal power plants uh, not worrying so much about carbon dioxide. Right, so this is scrubbers and things on tops of smokestacks exactly. that can pull those chemicals out but don't, don't affect the yeah, carbon. The Chinese have pretty sophisticated um, uh, coal plants. They know how to build those. And one of the issues that that you often hear is that just turning the switch on that makes those scrubbers work is sometimes an issue. <laughs> One of the other countries that, that you mentioned, I'd, I'd love to spend a little time on, which is India. Um, population of you know a billion people plus um, with a tremendous growth potential in front of it, very reliant on coal. Why is India so reliant on coal? You talked about pricing in the U.S. with gas undercutting um, coal prices. Isn't that wouldn't that logic be true in India, or is there something different there? Well, in a lot of it is geology, and it's what you have. I mean, one of the reasons that natural gas isn't used that much in China is is that they haven't found that much of it so far, but they have found coal, and building coal plants is pretty standard stuff. We've been doing that for you know, a couple hundred years. <laughs> so the uh, same thing is true in India. Uh, there have been some oil and gas discoveries in India, but not nearly to the extent that they have domestic reserves of coal. Um, so uh, back to China and one of the issues that, that they're facing, and India would be cognizant of the same thing too, is China is now the world's largest importer of oil. 
you know, you mentioned earlier uh, that the U.S. had gone from a big importer to, to now an exporter of petroleum products. Our overall oil imports have shrunk considerably. Uh, China's are growing. China's using 12 million barrels a day. They're only producing 5 million barrels a day of oil. So they are now importing more than we are. And China is, is going to be facing the same kind of questions about whether they need to have a role in the Middle East. What are they doing in the South China Sea to, to protect the sea lanes, uh, the, the whole gamut of issues that occupied U.S. presidents for 50 years, you know, back into the, from the mid-50s into, into the 2000s, uh, is, uh, is now going to confront China. And do we see the Chinese actually starting to take actions in that direction? Well, we, we have. I mean, the, the activity that's, that's occurring in the South China Sea with the island building and, and putting military bases on those islands is uh, something that's, that I think is, and it might not be for the resources of potential oil and gas in the South China Sea, but that's how all of the oil and LNG tankers are going to get into those industrial areas in China is through the South China Sea. They're probably really concerned about that. Um, the uh, Indian uh, uh, Navy is very concerned about uh, the uh, Indian Ocean and whether or not the imports that will be coming into India can be protected. Uh, so we're back to those geopolitical questions that you started with at the start. Uh, of our conversation here. Um, Although now it seems that in many ways, because of U.S. energy independence, a lot of those geopolitical questions are now being asked in the other countries where growth is still occurring. And to what extent would you expect there to be clashes and conflicts over these issues? Because the U.S., as you pointed out, has cared very deeply about this, cares deeply about South China Sea um, and and other seaways that have provided petroleum access and all. As other countries become concerned about that and want to take have a bigger role in assuring their own access and the free flow through those areas. One option would be, okay, the United States has it covered, so we don't have to worry about it. Um, But what you just implied was that they're going to want to take a more direct role. Does that mean that we're likely to see more conflict over who controls uh, these seaways? I think I'm going to predict that we're going to have more conflict, but, but I would be happy to say that the potential for conflict could increase as more actors uh, become involved uh, in, in thinking about this, especially China. Uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, has had this role of, of our Navy is the one that keeps the sea lanes open and they, uh, in, in the Gulf uh, in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, it's got two names, the Persian Gulf and the Arab Gulf, depending on, <laughs> on where you happen to be when you're pronouncing the, the name of the area. Uh, the, that um, region uh, has been a, a, a flashpoint for a lot of years, and it could continue to be. I think it was actually one of the reasons why President Trump wanted to make that one of his first trips. 
What do you think are the most important policy issues for the United States to be considering? Um, and do you have specific policy recommendations for the Trump administration, given that the, the landscape that you've painted about the world energy environment? Now that I'm no longer uh, at the Energy Information Administration, where uh, where we were not involved in making policy recommendations, I'm allowed to have opinions. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Please share them with our listeners. So, That'd be great. I mean, your question was very broad, and you didn't say energy. You didn't qualify it with energy. You know, one of the interesting things is if you do public polls, you know they do change over time. But but what American voters are really concerned about. Uh, right now with jobs in the economy, health care, um, the uh, issues like immigration and, and uh, terrorism, uh, and uh, things here in the United States, uh, right now energy and environment actually are pretty low on the list of, of what people think are urgent matters that need to be addressed by government. Um, so uh, the the policy prescriptions, if you were if you are going to make them, is uh, is you probably want to address those things that that people are really worried about. I'm going to stick to the energy area, <laughs> and and I've always been a big believer in in market forces and trade as as being uh, one of the better ways to to move forward. Uh, and uh, the market is clearly uh, pointing towards natural gas and hydraulic fracturing and what we can do there and even on the oil side as, as a way forward. I think one of the mistakes of the Obama administration was not approving the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, it, it would have created jobs. It was positive for the economy. It was a safer way to move it than by railroad or truck or, or barge. Uh, and from a geopolitical perspective, Having 800,000 barrels a day of Canadian heavy crude oil down in the in the Gulf Coast of the United States, where all a big chunk of our refineries are, uh, would be a tremendous thing right now, given all of the turmoil in Venezuela, where we're currently getting about 800,000 barrels a day of heavy oil. Um, those sorts of things, uh, I think policymakers have to continue to pay attention to. One of the proposals coming from the Trump administration uh, is to sell off about half of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I think that's a mistake. And why is that? You know, it's uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, um, a lot of people think of it as, oh, it's that last resort that can supply oil to the markets if we have a problem. And we've actually used it that way a few times. Uh, we used it that way in the Libyan um, uh, Arab Spring uh, problem where we lost a million and a half barrels a day of oil and we've used it occasionally for other um, natural disasters when it was uh, possible to, to get oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. One of the things that I think a lot of policymakers lose sight of is, is that when things go wrong in the energy area, and it's often a problem in the Middle East, and we lose a lot of oil, and gasoline prices go up a lot, there is a huge outcry for somebody to do something about that gasoline price. And the easiest thing for politicians to then do is to say, ah, let's have price controls, let's have allocation controls. We'll, we'll let the government figure out where the gasoline needs to go. That's a complete disaster. We've tried that 
Um, it, we know it doesn't work, but the temptation of politicians to have that as their answer is a really good one. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve provides that that safety valve of, oh, we can use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and we don't have to do or make other decisions that would be economically disastrous for the country. As we close, what do you think we should be paying attention to as the most important potential change um, in energy in the world? I think that that um, one of the uh, interesting opportunities for the United States uh, is to continue to be a leader in technology. Uh, the potential to use um, U.S. industry and our national labs uh, as a way to stay on top of the technological changes uh, that we've seen uh, already occur. Uh, hydraulic fracturing uh, clearly was driven by independent oil and gas producers in the United States, particularly gas at the beginning, uh, who were really looking for a way to improve uh, how much um, uh, gas and oil they could get out of the ground. But a lot of the, the underlying science of that was helped along by the federal labs, uh, big computers, um, horizontal drilling uh, techniques, uh, and even things like, uh, for a while, the, the dollar or a thousand cubic foot federal subsidy for uh, what they called tight gas uh, that is not on any longer. It, it, was, it was one of those perfect federal policies. It was put on in a period that encouraged the technology to develop, and they took it off when, when the industry was capable of standing on its own. That kind of public-private partnership and pushing things, uh, particularly in areas that, that a lot of people think are going to be very important over the next 25 or 40 years, uh, electric vehicles, batteries, yeah, improving right at, the grid. <laughs> yeah. Right. You, you mentioned batteries uh, right here at Argonne Labs here outside of Chicago is a big national battery project. Right. And, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed that in the budget cuts that are uh, proliferating uh, around the federal government that the labs don't get hit too bad because I think that that's going to be uh, important to everybody's um, economic future. Thanks very much for being here, Adam. It was really a very uh, helpful conversation to understand what's going on in a very complex environment in energy. Uh, and thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Please note the opinions you heard today are those of the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please subscribe or let us know in a review. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts and on the Council's website at thechicagocouncil.org. Deep Dish on Global Affairs is produced by Evan Fazio. Our research associate is Alex Hitch. And our editing intern is Grant Whitaker. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon for another slice of Deep Dish.